We're there in the classroom. We've prepared the questions. We begin to ask them. No one answers. Episode 15 of Teaching in Higher Ed, How to Get Students to Participate in Discussion. Produced by Innovate Learning, Maximizing Human Potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. This is Bonnie Stahoviak, and today I am joined by Dr. Stephen Brookfield, the John Ireland Endowed Chair from the University of St. Thomas in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Welcome, Dr. Brookfield. Well, thank you, Bonnie. I'm very happy to be here doing this. Well, I'm thrilled to have you, and I think the biggest challenge that I have is trying to encompass your career in a few sentences so we can get to the meat of the discussion. As I mentioned before we started recording, you have just an amazing career that has spanned a lot of different areas, but all of them focused on adult learning, on teaching, on critical thinking, discussion methods, and critical theory. You began your career in 1970. You've taught in England, Canada, Australia, and the United States in a lot of different settings and have written, co-written, or edited 16 books on all those topics I just mentioned. Are you exhausted already? <laughs> just <hearing that. laughs> I want to mention before we even dive into the questions for anyone listening, Dr. Brookfield has a terrific website with a lot of different resources. He has the PDF files for his workbooks for different workshops that he offers. He has some PowerPoint presentations and a lot of other references too. So do be sure to check out the show notes for this episode that are at teachinginhighered.com slash one five. Anything else I left out of your bio that's really important before I start asking you questions? Well, I think the only thing is that um, what I would really rather be doing with my life is making a living from my band, which is called the 99ers. Um, But since that's not an option, um, I I do education and love doing it. Well, it's it's interesting that you would say that because I did go click on the link and listen to your band and had so much fun. It it was I wondered if it was like an alter ego for you because it didn't seem to mesh up with the, the, the education career and then just this great, fun, lively band. Well, you know, in education, I think that cognition is so privileged and what gets rewarded is being carefully considered and articulate and playing music, especially the kind of punk rock and rockabilly rock and roll stuff that we play is it's visceral and so it brings a completely different part of uh, your being uh, into existence and mm-hmm. so I love the fact that I have this very visceral emotional side um, right front and center in, in my life um, which is a nice contrast to the 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 critically thoughtful, reflective, cognitive element of thinking about teaching. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
That's so you get to you get to exercise both. But if you could do anything else, you'd be with that band. It sounds like. Yes, I, I would. Well, we, since we're not going to have the band playing on today's show, I should start asking questions. Let's start by defining our terms. What is a discussion? Well, um, typically people tend to define or recognize a discussion when um, people are talking. And having people talking is not a discussion per se. In fact, I think you can have silent discussions one of my favorite techniques we'll probably talk about later that I stole from Hilton Smith uh, is called Chalk Talk, which is where you have a discussion um, that's completely silent but happens in writing and in, and in images uh, on a chalkboard or on a whiteboard or, or on a, a screen. Um, so for me, discussion is when a majority of learners are involved in exploring some topic that is of mutual concern to them. And in exploring that topic, they're trying to gauge its multiple shades and deepen their understanding of it by taking into account other people's views on it. Mm. So you can do that in multiple ways. You can seek to understand something more deeply by reading lots of authors on that. And in a sense, I suppose you could argue that you're having a discussion. The trouble, trouble is with that, the authors then can't talk back to you. Mm. So it's, uh, it's a con- constant and continuing exchange of perceptions and views and different understandings, um, new questions that are being raised, examples that are being provided for points already made. To me, that's what a discussion is, a disciplined and focused mutual exploration of a topic, but one in which people are constantly exchanging different viewpoints and raising different questions on, on that topic. What, what then is teaching with discussion? I think teaching with discussion is creating the conditions under which that kind of to and froing can take place. And I don't think teaching through discussion is walking into the class and saying, uh, we're going to have a discussion today. (laughs) Here's a question. Um, What do you think about this, guys? And then hoping that a mysterious chemistry will suddenly um, combust and people will be galvanized into wonderful exchange. I mean, that may happen on rare occasions, but from my point of view, teaching through discussion is very intentionally creating the conditions, um, structuring protocols that govern the way that people interact with each other. Um, And then your role as the facilitator, well, it's multiple as it always is in all kinds of teaching, but you are as much concerned with making sure that protocols are being followed and that space is being created for everybody to speak. That's as much a part of your teaching job as is checking on um, for understanding of content, which is also uh, important and necessary. But it's one of those situations where you really have multiple roles and identities, which, you know, I don't think is that uncommon in college teaching, unless all, all that you do is go in and just talk uninterruptedly um, 
you know, then I guess you you can ignore pretty much what's going, anything else that's going on in the room. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you depart from that, you have multiple uh, multiple roles and identities. I'm glad that you brought that up because we are having this discussion here, making the assumption that anyone who's listening actually wants to get better at teaching. Because I, I get sometimes tempted to talk about that, oh, when I just see colleagues or people at other institutions where it wouldn't matter if the room was full of people or not, they, they're just the more robotic the, the, your, t- your typical lecture. But in this particular dialogue today, I want us to, to just talk about people who want to get better at teaching. And likely, as you said, they already are creating somewhat of an environment for discussion. But you, you've been running these workshops all over the world and, and for years now, worked with educators. I, I would imagine over a thousand educators, that's probably a low number. What are some of the things that you see us doing that tend to hold us back from being effective at creating that environment for discussion? Well, I think um, there's a sort of overall metaphor that we unconsciously um, internalize, which is teaching us performance. So the Teacher of the Year awards, for example, typically go to charismatic teachers who are energetic and very alive in the classroom and um, extremely animated. Um, you don't tend to get Teacher of the, War, uh, of the Year awards going to people who create the conditions for good discussion to happen, occasionally interject, but don't do much else. That's almost seen, I think, in this teaching as performance paradigm as not teaching. But I think that, so for me, that's one of the biggest obstacles is that we tend to think that teaching is us talking and dispensing wisdom and clarifying confusion and slaying ambiguity and responding to questions in the most articulate way that we can. Um, And all of those things are, are obviously extremely important, but it's only one slice of this, um, I, don't, I, don't know if, I don't know if a pie can be multifaceted, but you know, it's only one segment really of what teaching is doing, because teaching is helping learning. That's it's very, very simple, at least in my way of thinking. Mm-hmm. As a teacher, your job is to help learning. And so you should be open to whatever way um, of working that helps students learn. Now, sometimes doing all the things I just mentioned, you know, being a really good lecturer who is uh, animated and charismatic and buzzing around the room and just a bundle of energy, that is exactly what's called for. But there are other times, I would argue, when you're taking students more deeply into dealing with complexity, and I think that's what discussion is particularly suited for, to helping uncover the complexities of whatever content it is that you're exploring. You know, when you do that, you, you have to work in different ways. You have to engineer opportunities for people just to be silent and think and not be embarrassed by silence in the classroom. Um, you have to uh, intervene to engineer opportunities for people to ask good questions of each other, um, to provide examples that clarify a point that's already been made by someone else, to build on what someone else has been saying, to respond to a point or to offer a different 
perspective or bring in a new interpretation. And all those things, I think, will help students learn uh, more deeply about the complexity of a topic. And I think it's, those are the kind of things that it's hard to do um, without using something along the lines of, of discussion. At least I found that in my own experience. Did you have a time in your career as an educator where you really struggled with this and had to overcome it? Or was it something that maybe more came naturally that you had to discover how to teach what was natural for you to others who it may not be as natural for? Well, actually, it, it was completely the opposite. It was, it was very unnatural. As a student, I hated discussion. I would much rather sit at the back of the room, take notes by myself, nod off, do my own reading. Um, and I hated the, the classes in which um, we, we, when we ran seminar breakout sections and we were expected to discuss a topic. And the reason I hated it was because I would get very nervous I'd have performance anxiety. Um, my notion of what being a good student was meant that in my mind I had to sound smart and articulate and say profound things and speak a lot. And as an introvert, I found that extremely difficult. So I really dreaded discussions. And then when I started teaching, I didn't use discussion at all. I would, I was just the most traditional teacher you can imagine. I remember my first couple of years standing in front of the room, reading my notes, basically dictating the notes, which the students already had because I printed them out beforehand. So um, it took me a long time to realize that as I moved from teaching 15 to 16 year olds and then moved into working with adults, if I was going to get them to deal with any kind of deep learning or complexity, um, I had to s stop doing that and I had to broaden my repertoire and bring in a lot more discussion. But then I found it really hard to do that because I was working along this model of, well, you bring in a terrifically provocative question, you raise it, and then the question is going to be so good hmm. that people will be jumping over each other to contribute to a conversation. And of course, that only happened very, very rarely. So I realized I really need to research what this dynamic of discussion entails. And in particular, I had to be aware that I think for students, the thing that stops them speaking, or at least one of them, is that performance anxiety. We don't want to take the risk of saying something that's wrong or that looks foolish so we'll just play it safe and we'll let the one or two raving extroverts in the group answer the questions because there's typically always, you know, a couple of students who will do that. Um, so what I had to do early on was think through how do I break this internal norm that students bring to higher education, which says that, well, to be good in discussion participation I have to be smart and profound and say a lot and show I know that I really know the material. So, so I developed a something that's on my homepage, and I encourage people to go and steal it and change it and adapt it to whatever they they're dealing with. I developed a, a grading rubric um, for partic for student participation. So, if you go onto stephenbrookfield.com, click on the workshop materials link, which is on the top right hand corner 
you'll see a number of PDF files. And I think the last thing under the PDF files is a, is a classroom participation rubric. And I put that in the syllabus and I go through it with the students. And it contains about 20 behaviors that I'm looking for as examples of good discussion participation. And pretty much all of the behaviors are you know, asking questions of others, um, building on something that someone has already said, drawing connections between um, two comments that have already been made, pointing out differences, uh, asking for a moment's silence, bringing in a new resource to the room. You know, none of the behaviors are of the um, be smart, sound profound, and talk a lot mm. variety. So I've really thought very, very deeply about how to go against the internalized norms that students have and the internalized image of a good discussion looking like when roundtable, which is what I think teachers have, and just understand that it is a, a you know it involves a lot of pauses, a lot of silence, and it's essentially the listening part of it is the most um, crucial element to it. So a lot of the early protocols I use, uh, you know, in a beginning class when people just come into a program are training them into listening carefully and responding based on that careful listening to, um, to something somebody else has said. And, and they also typically start with mandatory silence, thinking time. I realize one of my biggest mistakes as a teacher was to walk into the room, say, here's the topic for discussion pose the question, and then expect speech to um, erupt with no period of reflection or thinking. Mm. So I've just built that now very intentionally into discussion protocols I use. And even when a discussion is really going well, I have a rule, um, I have a little thing called structured silence where every 15 minutes I try and call for a minute or two silence and I say before we go into our next kind of discussion segment just take a minute to, to think about the point that you think was the most important one that's made in the last 15 minutes or what's the question that that's been posed for you that you'd like to talk a bit more about in in the next 15 minutes or what about the topic so far is most confusing or puzzling a kind of small classroom assessment technique device. Um, and, and then I get students to post their responses on uh, social media that I always have in my classroom. I have the screen up with um, either tw a Twitter feed, live Twitter feed, and I also use a tool called Today's Meet, um, todaysmeet.com, which mm -hmm. is fantastic. I go in about a minute before the class starts or 30 seconds as students are coming in, I pull today's meetup and I create a, uh, a room uh, where people can post responses using completely fictional identities to questions that I pose throughout the, um, the class that oh. day. So those who are listening, if you've not used today's meet, um, just go and check that out because it's a great tool particularly for students who are quieter, more diffident, for whom English is not their first language. Um, I found I get way more participation 
by bringing that kind of social media mm. regularly than just asking students, okay, who has questions? Yeah. One of the, the themes I'm hearing you talk about is really providing an environment that does, I don't want to say protect, because I don't think that's the right word, but I was going to say protect the introvert, but you really help create the fertile soil for them to to learn. So I was thinking about Susan Cain's work. For those of you who are listening, she wrote the book Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. And in her research, she talks a lot about, and I'm sure you've, it sounds like you're familiar with her work and are familiar with the research on introverts, that they are less likely to be promoted. And, and I, I don't know if it would be going too far, but to say discriminated against in some ways in at least the business world and, and yeah. in education as well. So, but at the same time, I think the other thinkers that I've read and, and I believe Susan Cain too say to an extent, let's have the fertile soil, but let's also recognize that that discrimination exists. So can we help to build their confidence and competence to be able to respond perhaps a little bit more like an extrovert. I don't know if that, does that resonate at all? Oh, absolutely. And I loved the fact that that book got so much popular attention. And I think all the extroverts um, in in this country just breathed a big sigh of relief. The introverts, I mean, I'm sorry, like (laughs) myself. Um, um, And you're right. It's, it's not protecting them because protecting them in a sense is what they're doing by, by not participating. You know, they're just saying, okay, we'll let the extroverts run things. Mm-hmm. But it's more creating the conditions under which they can participate. So I'm very interested in finding every way possible to bring introverts into the conversation and to stop extroverts moving immediately to dominate the proceedings. So um, so I, I love it when uh, extroverts in a class or, or teachers in a professional development workshop who are extroverts say, you know, I'd never really thought about how many introverts I'm not really serving by doing the things that I'm always doing and privileging talk so much in class. Um, so I'm really trying through all my activities to... Um, to create the opportunity for, for introverts to have their say, to bring their perspective in, to make sure that we don't miss a lot of the really good ideas that um, they have, but they just don't share because they're too diffident or, like me, suffer from performance anxiety mm-hmm. or, or whatever it is. Don't feel that they're, what they have to say is significant or important enough. So for an introvert to post something on a chalk talk um, board or to have a, a comment pulled up on a screen and then have people really focus on it and want to talk about it and, and explore it and probe it a little bit more deeply. That's just a very affirming thing for them. And hopefully it does build a confidence for them to think that I really do have something to offer and, and, and maybe to move to, um, to, to speaking more quickly, but in my own meetings, I mean, I use all these tools that we're talking about in the classroom as meeting tools. I use, I, I'll introduce a new agenda item in a team or department meeting, and we'll do a chalk talk on it, or mm-hmm. we'll do circle of voices, 
or circular response, specific protocols which deliberately create the opportunity for everybody to participate in the least pressured way possible and to stop the extroverts dominating from the outset. So I think these are incredibly adaptable. And in fact, right now, my colleague and I, Stephen Preskill, are working on a book which is going to be a very short book called The Discussion Book. Uh, It's going to come out probably sometime next year. And it's subtitle is called 50 Ways, Great Ways to Get People Talking. And we Mm. just have 50 techniques that we see and have used. We've used them in corporations, higher ed, the Occupy movement, the military, um, all the multiple contexts that we consult in. Um, So to me, this is part of living in a democracy and trying to actualize democracy uh, is these kind of specific approaches are the way I think you translate the lofty rhetoric of democratic participation Mm -hmm. into the day-to-day minutiae of how we run a meeting or make a decision in a unit or a work unit or an organization or a community. What do you, what is your perception of those who to get the students to do the reading before they come into the environment, use fear as a motivator. So an example would be if you come and you, I ask you a question and you don't answer it, you're going to be asked to leave. And and that's, by the way, not something that I do, but I know that there is a colleague who does it and actually is highly rated, perhaps because of the charisma element that you talked about, but that that's a technique that students both both fear not wanting that punitive being kicked out of the class but at the same time really seems to get the job done i i have obviously mixed feelings wondering what your response is well um my fundamental understanding of, of teaching is that it's just riven with contradictions and is highly contextual and so in the past when i would have said um never do A or B, Mm. like, you know, at one point in my career, when I'd been converted to discussion, I was extremely critical of of lecturing. And then I realized that a knee-jerk dismissal of that was ridiculous. And then another, uh, more recently, I've become aware of the fact that I do have power in the classroom. I have authority and being authoritative is not the same as being authoritarian or abusive. It just means that you have credibility in students' eyes and and you need to use it well. And I've I've seen what happens for some students when I'm very laissez-faire. They really resent that because they feel, well, I've done the work, but you're giving a pass to people who haven't done it. And that's unfair on me. So I'll just won't bother to do the work. So, you know, I, um, I, I wouldn't reject that mm. particular technique out of hand. For me, it would depend a lot on on what I knew about those that particular group of students, um, and perhaps if they had been used to working in an environment like that, um, that would seem actually quite familiar to them and might be the the thing that would really um, get them moving. Um, it would depend on how also I built the case for that to happen. Um, what I would probably do is not do that initially. I would, because that's, 
that just doesn't fit my personality. Mm-hmm. But if I tried other things and clearly none of them was working, then I think my responsibility as a teacher is to say, okay, let's think out of the box and think about what might work. If, I, if, if reading truly is a precondition for good learning to happen, and if I want students to know you have a responsibility to your peers here, it's not just my responsibility to teach. You know, I need to build a case why you have a responsibility to be peers um, helping each other learn. And if I really absolutely believe that, then I have to find ways to um, make sure there are consequences for people who don't take that seriously. So no, I wouldn't reject it out of hand, but I would, I, I would do it as a, uh, a much later in my um, realm of strategies that it wouldn't be the first thing that I would try. But, you know, uh, I've never done it, but that's not to say I won't. Yeah, I really um, appreciate you talking about just that it, things do vary so much on context. And then what might be might really work well for one person might not work well for someone else. So that's, that's, a, I love that. And that I'm really looking forward to the book coming out. It's, it's going to be great. What have I not asked you about that is critical for us to understand getting discussion to happen in the classroom? Um, I think one thing that we haven't really talked about yet is the role of modeling what discussion looks like. Uh, And I realize I've really fallen short on this for years and years and years. As a solo teacher, I've said to students, um, you know, I I really want to um, move to discussion now because through discussion we engage with complexity and so on and so forth, everything I said earlier. So let's discuss. And we move into it without them ever seeing me model my own commitment to discussion. And it's one of the reasons why if there's one one change I could make uh, in terms of higher ed, at least the pedagogical aspect, it would be that um, every course is team taught unless there's a strong reason why it shouldn't be. Hmm. Because I think in one of the multiple benefits of team teaching properly done is that students have a model for them of uh, two or three instructors um, engaging with complexity and being open to each other's viewpoints and really hearing what each other says and asking questions and, and pointing out uh, differences and similarities. So uh, I'm always interested in how, when I'm teaching solo, can I model that? And it's extremely difficult, but I've come up with a few different ways of trying to do that. Um, One is um, uh, when I teach online, which I do, um, I have an avatar uh, called Shannon and (laughs) all the students know it's me, but Shannon posts critiques of Stephen and asks Stephen tough questions and points out things that he feels Stephen is dodging and, and, um, or provides examples that illustrate or that challenge what Stephen is talking about. And then in a face-to-face classroom, um, I like to do the kind of Clint Eastwood chair thing that he did at the Republican convention yes. when, when he spoke to an empty chair as if Obama was sitting there. Mm-hmm. So I'll be, I'll be speaking in one part of the room and then, I'll move over to another part of the room, look back at where I was sitting and address myself as Stephen and say, Stephen, you know, uh, I think 
maybe one of the assumptions that your argument's really grounded on that, that needs a bit more examination is such and such. What do you think about that? Or Stephen, what would you say to the criticism that you know X makes about the particular argument or the evidence that so-and-so research that so-and-so has produced that calls your um, contentions into question? Um, and then I'll go back to where I was sitting and answer the questions I've just posed myself. It's a little bit hokey and laborious, but it it tries to get across the students that those are the kinds of things I'm looking for in discussion. And I'll tell them that's why I'm doing this. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to do my best to model for you the kinds of things that I feel it's important we do in in, in a discussion. I'm starting my 10th year of teaching in higher ed, and that's my my biggest challenge to myself this semester is to continually explain why I'm doing things. I do teach considerably differently than some of my other colleagues, so within my class itself, we have to unlearn some of the norms from other classes and then relearn to, to do things a little differently. And so it's, don't just tell them we're doing this, but explain why, explain why, explain why. So that's, that's I love that you're modeling that for me. Well, and, I, I, and it's interesting to me, I've been doing uh, a classroom assessment exercise called the, the Critical Incident Questionnaire for about 20, 22 years now. And one of the most consistent responses across thousands and thousands of students is or workshop participants is that we we really appreciate whenever you explain why you're doing what you're doing and what the point of an exercise is and so i've written in the skillful teacher about a book of mine about the notion of of credibility and how students judge that you are a credible teacher that they can have confidence in and feel that you're a skilled guide leading them uh, along a, a learning journey and it's interesting that your ability to give a clear rationale for why you're doing what you're doing and to keep doing that, to have that just as a permanent feature of what you do, that gets such consistently high ratings across incredibly varied contexts. It's been very striking mm-hmm. to me. So like you, I've really tried to be much more intentional about that. How do we create the conditions to facilitate effective discussion? Um, Well, I think we start with something like the um, rubric. Mm -hmm. um, And then we introduced initial protocols, and you'll find these on the website, like the circle of voices, which is something where um, you give a a question, you mandate maybe a couple of minutes silent thinking about it, have students in small groups, give their initial response to the question, but they go around their small group and no one is allowed to interrupt each other when they're giving that initial response. And then the groups move into small group conversation, but the ground rule is that you can only talk about what somebody else has said in the opening round. It's a really simple exercise. I do it at the beginning of most of my courses with multiple learners, and I'm telling them what I'm trying to do is to socialize you into understanding that silent thinking time and then listening carefully are both incredibly important elements in a discussion rhythm. It's not just talk 
and saying what you think and explaining what you think to others. Mm. So, um, so I think we have to model it. We have to um, structure a reward system that rewards those things. And then over time, we have to introduce protocols that, um, that actually demonstrate what we're talking about. Thank you so much. I'm going to move us now to the part of the show where we each make a recommendation. Mine is just a mention to the listeners. If you didn't read this in this week's tech news, Google changed things up a little bit and has integrated their Google Voice product with their Google Hangouts. Google Voice is where I can have a phone number and have people leave messages. A lot of people in higher ed have that as their phone line if they're Perhaps phone number at the university isn't quite as robust in features as they might like it. And Hangouts are where we can have synchronous discussions. We can even do screen sharing in there. The fact that both of these are now integrated is just to me making it worth another look. I think the one plus one is equaling three in this case. And it's going to be interesting to see what the those who really innovate in educational technologies come up with how to use these tools as they are integrated. And how about you, Stephen? What's your recommendation? Uh, my recommendation, I guess, is more global, Bonnie. It's the, the, to make sure that as you're making decisions as a teacher on which instructional approaches to use, say, which assignments to set and so on, um, try and find some way of researching how the students are responding to your teaching, how they're experiencing their learning on a regular basis. Don't wait until the end of course semester um, to find out about that. So, um, again, if you go to my homepage, stephenbrookfield.com, on the top left-hand side, there is a link to the classroom critical incident questionnaire. It's a tool I developed and have used for a long time. You can click on that link, download the tool, use it. You don't need to ask me permission to use any of the stuff on my homepage. And, and that's a, a, a weekly way of finding out how students are responding to the course and to their learning, and I use that information to make my decisions as a teacher. Well, I just appreciate you so much taking a bit of a risk on me, someone that you had never heard of before, and to really invest your time for our listeners. The one criteria that you had for me was that this information is freely available. And I believe in working out loud, getting better at what I do by fumbling along and, and getting to talk to someone like you is such an honor. Thank you so much for being a guest on Teaching in Higher Ed. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure, Bonnie. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. If you haven't already, I would highly suggest that you subscribe to our weekly update. You can find it at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. When you subscribe, you get the weekly teaching article and you also get the notes from podcasts like the one you're listening to right now with all the great links that were mentioned by today's guests. 